From American Public Media, this is Campaign 68. I'm Kate Ellis. When we think about American history and American democracy, it's all about narratives. It's about stories of what we believe and how we see ourselves. This is historian Peniel Joseph. Joseph is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. I caught up with Joseph recently to talk about the role of race in the 1968 presidential campaign and how, in today's divided nation, the fight for equality continues. Joining me in the conversation is my co-producer, Stephen Smith. Professor Peniel Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the angry white voter in 1968 and since then. Richard Nixon talked about them as the so-called silent majority, the non-shouters, the people who wanted law and order. After Donald Trump was elected, there was a lot of talk about white voters, especially in rural communities who, it was said, felt left behind, silent, invisible, threatened, angry. How do they compare to people who supported Nixon and Wallace in 1968? Well, I think they're very similar. Absolutely. When we think about 1968 and these Wallace and Nixon supporters, just like the Trump supporters, some of the support is pivoted on economic anxiety. Most of the support is actually pivoted on racial anxiety and a politics of racial resentment. And one thing I think the media got wrong in 2016, right after the presidential election, is this obsessive focus on rural and non-urban whites. This has always included all whites nationally across the nation. So people can be from Cambridge, Maryland, or Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. Um, They can be from Boston, or they can be from Oakland, California, or Los Angeles. This idea that white supremacy is this regional phenomena, that it's only people in the Midwest, it's only people in the South and and the Deep South, it's just not true. So their support had depth and it had breadth. So the Nixon and Wallaceites were national. And certainly we saw empirically 62 million people voted for Donald Trump. So his support had depth and breadth that was unbelievable, including, you know, majority of of white men and white women voted for him. And the the majority of folks who are college educated voted for him. So it's extraordinary, the similarities. One thing I will say is that when we think about 68, the Wallace voters feel as if they're being invaded racially by African-Americans in spaces that were predominantly white and historically white. By 2018, racial segregation has been re-solidified in the United States, both residentially and in public schools. So in 68, people felt, and they had good reason to feel this way, that there was a danger that there was nowhere they could run, nowhere they could hide from the blacks, in quotes. By 2018, there absolutely is the realization that racial integration is not going to happen in the United States anytime soon. The high point of public school integration is 1988. And since then, all the data shows us that we've had retrenchment and resegregation. We're back to levels of segregation in some places that are akin to pre-Brown, the 1954 Supreme Court desegregation decision, and in some cases mimic the the token integration of the first really two decades after Brown. Some people have used the term white backlash to describe the anger of Nixon's supporters or those of Alabama Governor George Wallace. Is that how you would describe it? Is backlash really the right term? No, I don't think backlash is the right term. I think that 
What we see with the Wallaceites and also the Nixon supporters is really an amplification of white supremacy and a defense of white privilege and a a defense of a very specific kind of racialized American democracy that is the, the privilege and platform for basically white straight males nationally, not just throughout the South. Because there's going to be huge Nixon and Wallace supporters in Detroit, in Chicago and the suburbs, Um, you know, states like Arizona and the Southwest, the Sun Belt, Texas. But no, it's not a backlash because the, the notion of civil rights and black citizenship and black dignity was never really embraced by the majority of white Americans. So what you see in the aftermath of the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act Um, coupled with the urban rebellions in Los Angeles and Newark and Detroit and and other cities, is really an amplification of this defense of racial segregation and defense of uh, the regime of Jim Crow. So in a way, 68 is a great example of what we're going to be litigating throughout the next, really, two and a half decades. Everything from affirmative action to school integration Um, Remedies for school integration like busing. Um, How do we speak and talk and debate about American democratic culture? Um, What are the uses and the role of violence both by the state and demonstrators and rhetorical violence by politicians? So we're going to be debating all these things in the future for an extended period of time. Some people by the early 90s called this the culture wars, but I think that was a misnomer, too. It's really a battle for the soul of American democracy. And culture is a part of it, but it's really about politics. It's about resources. It's about economics. It's about capitalism. It's about how is wealth distributed and redistributed in the country. And certainly it's about what Martin Luther King Jr. talked about in 1968, militarism, materialism, and racism. He called those the triple evils, the triple threats facing humanity globally. And when we think about 1968, that's the core argument Americans are having with each other. And they're going to continue to have those arguments with each other from 68 all the way to the present. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. So help us understand then how Richard Nixon capitalized on white antagonism to civil rights advances and the rise of the Black Power movement in his bid for president in 1968. Well, Nixon is really coming out of the Cold War wing of the party. So in a way, since the 1950s, Nixon was coming out of the McCarthyite wing of the Republican Party when he was chosen in the summer of 1952 to be Dwight Eisenhower's running mate. Nixon had always been conservative, but as vice president, he really staked a middle ground because he had to on issues of civil rights and social justice, especially by the second Eisenhower term. Eisenhower sort of dispatches Richard Nixon as his emissary to Africa. And both Ike and Richard Nixon held racially discriminatory views. They were they were racist in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But Nixon visits Africa. He meets with the Ghanaian prime minister, Kwame Nkrumah. He meets with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So he stakes a middle ground in the 1960 election on race relations as well. So that's background because by 1968, 
um, Nixon really pivots. It really starts with the 1966 election. Uh, famously, Nixon had run uh, for governor against Pat Brown and been defeated um, in 1962 and had told the press that they wouldn't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. I leave you gentlemen now. <laughs> and uh, you will now write it. You will interpret it. That's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, <laughs> just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. And uh, it will be one uh, in which uh, I have uh, welcomed the opportunity to test wits with you. I have always respected you. I have sometimes disagreed with you. But unlike some people, I've never canceled a subscription to a paper. And also, I never will. Nixon makes a really remarkable comeback in 1966. So by 1968, Richard Nixon is the standard bearer, even though the hard, hard right would have preferred the new, dashing, not-so-young governor of California named Ronald Reagan. So what Richard Nixon does is he pivots becomes close to Strom Thurmond, the notorious segregationist governor and racist and white supremacist from South Carolina, governor and senator now by 68. Nixon pivots and really starts to speak in the language of what people call coded racism. So he starts to speak in the language of being against busing uh, for local autonomy, not just states' rights, but neighborhood rights, community control. So in a way... Just like black power activists are talking about community control and, and self-determination, Richard Nixon is talking about community control for white voters in suburban America. So consider Orange County, California. He's saying the folks in Orange County shouldn't have to bust their children anywhere, nor should they have to receive uh, African-American children in their school systems. But this isn't about racism. This is just about neighborhood control. So from that perspective, Nixon... Um, becomes really a trailblazer and not so much as a formulator or the person who's leading this movement top down. He really becomes the receptacle and the spokesperson for a grassroots and at times um, elite movement against racial desegregation, against black citizenship and black dignity and black equality. And when he's thinking nationally, he talks about the silent majority. And he says, these are the non-protesters, the non-shouters. These are the good, decent Americans. So in a way, when we think about Richard Nixon, he definitely effectively marshals um, anti-Black sentiment, anti-Black racism. But he uses language that critics can absolutely uncover, but language that is less uh, volatile and vociferous than George Wallace who's an open white nationalist and segregationist and white supremacist who's going to end up with over 10 million votes in the 68 election. But many people who uh, feel the way the Wallace forces feel but want to be involved and connected to mainstream politics and don't want to necessarily identify as racist really are going to support Richard Nixon. There's a, a question that I've been thinking about, which is, are politicians um, today and, and even in the past, but let's just say today, are they taking advantage of an already existing racial resentment or are they creating that resentment or both? How do you see that dynamic? I think that dynamic is really both. 
I think that there's a a real reciprocal relationship with both of those facets in the sense that when we look at post-war American history at the grassroots level from places like Orange County, California, all the way to upstate New York, there were local movements by residents who did not want um, their schools integrated. They didn't want their churches integrated. They didn't want public accommodations integrated. And this was coming from communities. One branch of this was called uh, white citizens councils. And these were really um, white elites, not just middle class, but upper middle class business and civic and clergy elites who wanted the system of Jim Crow and racial segregation and institutional racism to continue. Some of these folks were willing to align with people who use violence. Oftentimes they were they were not going to use violence. They wanted to use public policy. They wanted to use coercion. They wanted to use the democratic system to suppress black citizenship. Now, they needed allies. And when we think about the relationship between grassroots proponents of Jim Crow and the uh, our political system, it's something that scholars are now beginning to look at with more um, depth and breadth. And so not only do they align themselves with elected officials and would-be elected officials, but they also align themselves with a web of both nonprofits and think tanks and social and political networks to ensure that the regime of Jim Crow segregation is going to continue at all institutions in our democratic society. So this means judges, this means um, city council, this means school boards, this means zoning and tax boards. It's, it's quite remarkable the sophisticated defense that they start to mount as early as the 19, late 40s and early 1950s. Uh, in the context of post-war American history. So when we think about folks like Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, we often give them way too much credit, okay? We give them way too much credit in the sense that they are absolutely taking advantage of this pre-existing, not just racial division, but these 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 wars of attrition that are happening at the local level um, to prevent Black citizenship and Black access and racial equality. But it's much bigger than them. When we think about the Supreme Court and we think about different public entities and different boards that the executive, the the commander in chief, the president of the United States has control over, uh, there's a whole system and network. It's not just the Koch brothers and it's not just um, the, the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, but there's a network that includes millions of people over the last 50, 60, 70 years that have made concerted, very strategic efforts to do everything from prevent public schools to being, of being integrated to really supporting voter suppression and supporting voter ID laws to supporting the rise of mass incarceration, all with the intent of keeping neighborhoods and keeping control and keeping power and resources in the hands of of certain communities. So how is bigotry, coded or not, being used today by politicians? When we think about coded language, Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, future historians and social scientists and scholars and critics and writers are going to look back upon that slogan as really one of the most powerful um, you know, coded but also overt messages in the history of the Republic. Together, we will make America strong again. 
We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. By saying make America great again, what he did through that, and you had everybody from people in popular culture and media taking sides, some wearing the hat proudly, others saying, no, this is racist. But what he did was really tap into American nostalgia and also fears about racial diversity in the country and multiculturalism, because we have all these demographers telling us that by 2050, America will no longer be a predominantly white nation. It's going to be predominantly populated by citizens who are people of color. And that has raised a host of questions of what's going to happen to white privilege and white power. And I think this idea of make America great again was was crucially important when we think about um, race in America, because it was a it was a slogan that suggested we had to go back in time to a period in American history where white supremacy was unquestioned and where white male patriarchy was the norm and unquestioned. And we saw a huge embrace of that by people from a variety of, of backgrounds, um, largely white, of course. And I think that that message has had huge, huge reverberating effect on our political discourse and American political culture, because once that message hit home during the election, and once Trump won, despite the fact that he lost the popular vote by over 2 million votes, that really provided a license for many people, not just those on the far right and people who are professional conservatives or professional professional practices of hate speech and, and racial division, but it gave it gave a lot of people, and we've we've seen all the stories since um, the 2016 election about black people having the police called on them for trying to barbecue or sell bottled water or be in places that um, they had every right to be in a, a dorm room at Yale University, being in Napa Valley, being in a on a golf course that you have every legal right to be in and white people call the police on them. And I'd have to say that that uptick is at least in part connected to the rise of Donald Trump, but also connected to this notion of make America great again. And this idea that black presence in our civic lives has somehow degraded the idea of America, because that's what America is an idea. It's really been remarkable because what Trump has been able to do is at least challenge the post-civil rights consensus that racial justice is a principle and core part of American democracy. Because when we think about what did the civil rights movement achieve, besides legislation, King's not just March on Washington speech, but his letter from Birmingham jail really succeed in pushing other presidents. In this case, um, we're thinking about immediately John Kennedy and Kennedy's really remarkable uh, speech on racial justice, June 11, 1963, and then Lyndon Johnson and Lyndon Johnson saying, we shall overcome March 15, 1965. So what King does in letter from Birmingham jail, while he's trying to desegregate the city of Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 1963, is he makes the argument that the people who are being arrested, the demonstrators like himself who are being arrested, but the young people who are filling the city's jails 
are being castigated, but one day they're going to be remembered for what King writes is is for, for bringing us all back to those great wells of democracy that were dug deep by the founding fathers. So King makes this argument that civil rights activism is part of all of Americans' um, patriotic duty. He links civil rights to the American Revolution, to the Constitution, to the Declaration of Independence. So by Selma, by the time he's pushing for voting rights and the movement is pushing for voting rights in 1965, and, and by the time of Bloody Sunday on, on, on March 7th, uh, 1965, eight days later, Lyndon Johnson compares the demonstrators who are beaten onto Edmund Pettus Bridge to the patriots who fought in Concord and Lexington, Massachusetts uh, during the American Revolution. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Right there in 65, we solidify at least the ideal that racial justice has always been a core part of American democracy, even though we know historically that's not true. But what what King basically does is he spins, he spins, he creates a narrative that says, you know, this is who we are. And really, until 2016, that narrative stuck even as we've had huge gaps between our rhetoric of racial justice and the reality of racial justice. But what's important for a democracy is always a political consensus. And really, a political consensus is basically a story. It's a narrative of who we are. And that story is a story that people are going to debate, that has conflict, that people are going to say, no, you're getting this wrong or you're leaving this people out. But it's important to have the story. What Trump does and what Make America Great does is say, you know what? We want to erase that last 50 or 60 years of American history. And we actually don't believe that principles of racial justice are core parts of American democracy. In fact, quite the opposite. How do you think about today's racial justice organizations, civil rights organizations such as Black Lives Matter? And in what ways are there direct links back to 68? And in in what ways are there not? Well, Black Lives Matter is, is a great example of direct linkage, because when we think about the BLM movement, they do a couple of things. Um, they take aspects from the civil rights movement and they take aspects of black power. And the aspects that they take from the civil rights movement is really this notion of, of nonviolent civil disobedience. They've been attacked and assaulted rhetorically uh, for fomenting violence, but the heroic period of the civil rights movement was also attacked for fomenting violence. So just because you're nonviolent doesn't mean that your critics or your, your, your opponents won't attack you. But they've also taken from the language of the black power movement, and they've taken that language in the sense of black power has a structural critique of American racism. They have a structural critique of economic justice or American capitalism, of inequality and what people in the 1960s 
we're calling American imperialism or American empire or American hegemony. Uh, when we think about BLM and its tactics, uh, its tactics of shutting down highways, organizing um, demonstrations and mass political mobilizations have been very reminiscent of 1968. I think the way in which it's different is um, BLM has been on the cutting edge of really trying to decenter heteronormative politics, even within the black community. So in that sense, they're taking a page from Audre Lorde, from James Baldwin, from this real rich tradition of black, gay and lesbian um, and trans activists and, and writers uh, that we've had that say if we if we place these folks who are being marginalized the most, even within the black community at the center for a movement for social justice, it's going to reverberate wide enough and deep enough to impact all these communities that are being marginalized and being oppressed in the United States. How would you assess the power now of African-Americans in the political system itself, especially those people who are in office? Well, I think that's a great question. I think that the power on some levels is um, it's very limited. I think you're seeing a new generation of people who are trying to uh, be transformational leaders by moving away from, uh, one, when we think about elected officials, primarily it's been a one-party game in, in the sense of it's been the Democratic Party. The modern Democratic Party, its, its roots historically are in the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. And the Republican Party, the modern Republican Party, its roots are in the, 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 the white supremacists and the Dixiecrats of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So sometimes I think the general public gets confused about, you know, why would the party of Abraham Lincoln be against affirmative action and have so few black elected officials? But in fact, this is the party of white supremacy and the parties realigned um, and voters realigned in the aftermath of the Democratic Party's identification with the struggle for black dignity and citizenship and civil rights. And so when we think about contemporary black elected officials, on the one hand, you've got an old guard that came of age in the 1960s. People like John Lewis, Jim Clyburn, people were connected to the Congressional Black Caucus, and some of them have leadership positions in the House of Representatives. On the other, you're you're seeing an, a new generation of young black politicians. We're thinking about people like Stacey Abrams, who's trying to run for governor of Georgia, Andrew Gilliam, the um, mayor of Jackson in Florida, who's trying to run for uh, governor. We're thinking about Ayanna Presley, who is running for Congress in Massachusetts. And these leaders are really trying to be paradigm changers. They're trying to say they don't want business as usual and they're talking about dramatic programs for social and political justice that'll impact everyone, but especially the, the black community. But when we think about political power as it stands right now, it's been mediated through norms of white supremacy, including at the elected level. Some of that is connected to gerrymandering and connected to active voter suppression. Some of that is based on the presidency of Barack Obama. When you think about Barack Obama, one of the ironies of Obama's presidency in his two terms is the way in which black elected officials who were not aligned with his agenda, they saw their power 
diminish, including those who were aligned with his agenda, because folks had critiques of the president, including Congresswoman Maxine Waters and others. But the black community was so enthralled by Obama, and they were also so eager to defend him against genuine assaults from conservatives and white supremacists, whether we're thinking about the birther movement or the, the, the faction of the Tea Party movement that was overtly and virulently racist, whether we're thinking about the congressman who yelled, you lie to the president. There are all these assaults on the dignity and the, the respect of the office of the presidency, but personal assaults against Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, their daughters, Sasha and Malia, that the black community really defended them in, in, a, in a way that, that ultimately, I would argue, hurt black elected officials and black political power because uh, the president could mediate his own relationship with black voters really for the first time in American history. Other presidents used surrogates to reach out to the African-American community. Barack Obama was the first president who needed no surrogates and really brooked no criticism of his treatment towards the African-American community. And that really had had a had a chilling effect on black politics too. I don't think uh, the president was aware of this exactly, but the impact and the implications nonetheless are are there for us. And I think that's why now the the politicians that you're seeing come up, including you know efforts by some young community activists and organizers. There's people who are connected to BLM who I think are are trying to utilize politics and public policy in a game changing way. But they're making racial justice the core of their efforts to utilize the American political system. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, there was talk that we were in some kind of post-racial era. That was clearly not the case. How do you think about the fact that the nation elected its first African-American president 40 years after King's death and then President Trump eight years later? Yeah, when we think about, again, American history and American democracy, it's all about narratives. It's about stories of what we believe and how we see ourselves. And when we think about 2008, Barack Obama spun a narrative about his own life story and American democracy that was extraordinarily compelling, really I would say the most compelling uh, personal story for a presidential candidate running at the national level in American history. And he received 69 million votes plus the most in American history. Um, It's really the most exciting campaign in modern American history. Um, There's when they did the data and, and the empirical studies of this, more people saw Barack Obama run for president, meaning they came to his live events than any other person in, in American history. More people voted for Barack Obama than any other person in American history. So from that perspective, his story of being the son of a white woman whose, whose, whose parents were from Kansas, but who grew up in Hawaii, an African father from Kenya, and, and trying to make his way in the world. His, his memoir, Dreams from My Father, tells this story of this young man trying to wrestle with race and his identity, but also issues of social justice and also bridging the racial divide and bringing black and white people together. And for him, it's both political, but it's also personal because he's been raised by his white grandparents and he's he's lived in this multiracial community in Hawaii. He goes to Occidental College, goes to Columbia University, then goes to Harvard Law School, meets Michelle Obama, becomes a state senator, and in 2004 runs for the Senate 
and he he wins. He's only in the Senate for four years total. So when, when we think about Obama's story, the story is a remarkable story. And so by the time he wins the White House, it's such a huge deal. And, and the, the way in which journalists and many people receive that story was um, with a premature celebration that this narrative of, of Barack Obama approved once and for all. There were no more glass ceilings. There were no more racial barriers. I think the New York Times headline was last, last racial barrier broken. And again, that's an erroneous headline because there's many more racial barriers to be broken. But certainly this was a big one. This was a big one. So the whole idea of a post-racial America ignored the fact that there were, you know, over 2 million people in prison when Obama came into office, 40% of whom were black, and blacks are only 12% of the, the U.S. population. Blacks were overrepresented in all the negative social economic indicators and underrepresented in all the positive social economic indicators. So it ignored the continuation of institutional racism, um, the continuation and the evolution of Jim Crow segregation and white supremacy in favor of really a narrative of exceptionalism, just like we as a nation pride ourselves on this narrative of American exceptionalism, this notion that we are uniquely endowed as a nation state to be liberty's surest guardian globally, but also to provide all kinds of different groups of people opportunities here that they otherwise would not have had. So it's sort of our manifest destiny to lead the world economically, culturally, politically. And in a way, Obama really attested to that. Obama is himself a big believer in American exceptionalism. And the night he won in Grant Park, he said that um, in no other place on the planet is his story, was his story possible. Hello, Chicago. And he said that America was a place where all things are possible. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. And, and you know, people wanted to believe that, and they, they, they believed it. I think what you see in terms of the subsequent eight years, and if you, if you look at his administration in a year-by-year -year chronology, that in a way, the seeds of distrust and doubt and fear that are going to lead to the Donald Trump presidency were there when Obama took office as well. And Obama takes office wanting to be a bipartisan healer. Um, Obama really wants to be really a combination of Reagan rhetorically and Kennedy uh, rhetorically, but really rule and govern like Eisenhower. Eisenhower was able to govern over a largely Democratic House of Representatives and Senate during his eight years and craft bipartisan legislation. Obama wanted to do that in terms of everything from stimulus to health care, and he really comes up against not just partisan politics, but a GOP and a Republican Party that have by now been largely taken over by interest groups that are both grassroots, when we think about aspects of the Tea Party, interest groups that are both elite, when we think about Koch brothers and others who are really bent on transforming legislation to pay as low taxes as possible, transforming the federal judiciary to ensure 
that they have as expansive gun rights and gun legislation as possible, and also transforming the judiciary to ensure that environmental laws and environmental protections remain as lax as possible, and also to transform the judiciary to make sure that reproductive rights remain as minimal as possible, and to transform the judiciary to make sure that voting rights remain as minimal as possible. The, the party had already been in major ways taken over by that. So he is really stymied, and, and the division that we see by 2009, where we see a Tea Party movement, we see a birther movement, uh, we see uh, an inability for Obama to bring legislators together to craft what his supporters had wanted as, as a new deal. You know, they wanted domestic relief for the poor, for the homeless, the marginalized, uh, for people who were in prison, for college students, for a whole wide spectrum of groups. And they didn't get that. And if anything, what you saw was a bitter partisanship and, and really a president being treated in a way that previous presidents absolutely had not been treated. And then when it came to the African-American community, by the time of Trayvon Martin in 2012, by the time of Ferguson and Baltimore in 2014 and 2015, what you saw was a president who was overseeing a domestic order where there were millions of African-Americans who were on the margins through no fault of their own. And I think except for people who are professional civil rights activists, professional scholars, um, racial justice advocates. When Obama was elected in 2008, I don't think many people realized the extent of racial division in the United States because we were looking towards racial symbols. We looked towards elected officials, towards Oprah Winfrey, LeBron James, uh, Michael Jordan. We looked for symbols of racial progress, and we didn't really think about how racial outcomes were, were continuing to conform to these long-standing patterns of racial injustice in the United States. And I think that during his administration, this came to head on both forces of the right and left, because forces of the right really utilized his presidency to do a couple of things. They sowed racial division, but they also said and proclaimed that racism was over and it was dead. So even as they supported inquiries into his citizenship and proclaimed him somebody who was born in Africa, so he was an illegitimate president. They also said that his election showed definitively once and for all that the country wasn't racist. So they, they, did, they did a couple of things there um, through a sleight of hand that their supporters never acknowledged that contradiction. And then his supporters on the left really made the argument that Obama should have done much more for poor people, for black people, for, for women, for the marginalized who largely supported his campaign. So I think by the time we get to 2016 and the election of Donald Trump, he's going to absolutely instigate and augment and take advantage of racial and economic divisions that he and other conservatives actually helped to stir during the Obama presidency. Is the Trump narrative that you've described as kind of separating democracy from racial justice, is that the narrative of the future in your view? What's, what's your outlook? Well, I think it's one narrative, absolutely, because I think that narrative is important for people who want to maintain and consolidate power and white supremacy, because one narrative, and we've seen it, we're seeing it now 
where one narrative of the future of American democracy is that irrespective of how many people of color are in the country, elites, oligarchs, and different supporters of white supremacy through gerrymandering, through voter suppression, through legal means, but unethical means as well, and at times extra legal and violent means, are going to ensure white power. So this becomes a, a nation very akin to South Africa from that perspective, where South Africa had a white minority of two, three million, and there were 12, 15 million you know, black Africans who, who had no power and were racially segregated and couldn't go to school and had to have passes to move around their own country. So from that perspective, that's one narrative that I think is, is uh, important for people who don't want to see multiracial democracy thrive uh, in the future. The other narrative is the narrative that Dr. King talks about in 1968, this narrative that we're engaged in a bitter but ultimately beautiful struggle uh, for multiracial democracy where um, we're going to you know, end gerrymandering, we're going to have campaign finance uh, reform, we care about the environment and climate change. And I think one of the things we're seeing now is that to maintain a consensus about racial justice, even as an ideal, we need for activists, but also elected officials, for for people who are in power, voices that are part of our representative democracy, to constantly hammer that lesson home to the to its citizenry. Because we've seen through the president's tweets, through the president's actions, that words matter. When you're growing up, you have the sticks and stones. Uh, may break my bones, but words can never hurt. But words do hurt, and words matter. Words persuade people. People become president and leaders just because of words and the arguments and the ideas and the stories they're crafting. So we, we there definitely is another version and vision that is both closer to the ideals of 1968, but also brand new, because in 1968, we left a lot of people behind, including people who were uh, gay and lesbian and, and, and trans, people who were poor and mentally ill. Um, we left so many different people behind. So the new American consensus on racial justice should be expansive enough that we're not uh, leaving anybody behind. And it should be both something that's talking about particular people, but but that leads us to a universal story. Because all of our stories are particular, but they all connect to universal themes of, of civil and human rights. And that's what Dr. King, the civil rights movement, Black Lives Matter, ultimately um, have been trying to articulate and say. Professor Peniel Joseph teaches in the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the History Department at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. Professor Joseph, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you. This is Campaign 68 from APM Reports. Next time, we'll talk about the remarkable impact one man had on the 1968 presidential campaign and on the next 50 years of American politics. His name was Roger Ailes. Journalist Gabriel Sherman wrote a biography. The ideas and themes of the 1968 campaign, the silent majority and law and order and the class and cultural resentments that Nixon espoused in that campaign in which Ailes played such a pivotal role continue to, f to define our national politics. And Donald Trump is in many ways the logical endpoint of 
an era that has been defined by both television and the culture war that has never ceased since the clashes of 68. That's next time on Campaign 68. This episode was produced by Kate Ellis, Tracy Mumford, and me, Stephen Smith. It was edited by Catherine Winter and mixed by Craig Thorson. Campaign 68 is a production of American Public Media and APM Reports. Support for this program comes from the Olseth Family Foundation, working to improve community through support of the arts, education, the environment, and the underserved. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.